All right, hey, let's get started. 9.30. Um, if you guys have a Bible handy, you should just keep your Bible open to Exodus 24. Most of the other Bible passages I have on the screen, but Exodus 24 I do not. And that will be our main text for today. All right, so... Um, Whatever Pastor Kendall was talking about, I'm not talking about, because, because, yeah, because I don't know what he was doing. All right, so, look at that guy up there. That guy just exudes, like, I want to know something about romance and love. That is the guy I'm talking to, right? I mean, well, that's G.K. Chesterton. He's an author. Some of you guys might have heard of Father Brown, very popular uh, British BBC uh, series. Um, he, yeah, so he wrote Father Brown. He was an essayist, philosopher, author, uh, Christian uh, apologist. And anyways, um, he got this great quote here. Let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And so today we're going to talk about nuptials, but in the most unusual way, or not well-known way. Okay, because, um, you know, it's funny, did Marilyn or Jan say that, you know, just, I, I put the picture of him up there because, yeah, you, and you don't look at him and you're like, that, that guy exudes passionate love. <laughs> but the point is, is that he was passionately in love, Okay. And, and this is why I want to get to this, is that when we talk about nuptials, or what we're going to talk about, God being a bridegroom today, um, the, 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 the challenge is to not project your understanding of that onto God. It's to flip it around and let, you, let yourself receive what God has to say about these things. Okay? I mean, some of it will, you know, resonate, but... Maybe then others won't. All right. And, and the reason why I... So we're going to talk about nuptials. Or God being a bridegroom today. Because... Um, yeah, because I think a lot of people see religion as a theory. Or maybe, uh, you know, kind of an addition to your life rather than life itself. And so, you know, you don't... One of the things that for married people, right? You don't see your spouse as like an add-on to your life. Like, yeah, this is a guy that's, Holly's, you know, I just share my house with Holly. You know, no. I mean, that's not how I live my life. It's, it's now changed who I am as a person, and so my life is now centered not just on myself, but on us. So there's this uh, community. Anyways, so this is why I put that quote up there, let your religion be less of a theory, more of a love affair, because... That is precisely how God wrote the Bible. Um, I got a clicker. I've got to get used to using it, though. Clicker. It worked. Okay. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that nuptials and, and bridegroom is that Scripture begins with a wedding, ends with a wedding, and it has an erotic love poem in the middle. And if you've been around me long enough, you already know that. Because I bring that up quite a bit. And I can't stress this enough. Because 
um, you know, the Bible is not a set of rules. In fact, uh, the English Standard Version of Exodus 24 uses the word rules. And I'm just, I'm kind of bummed out about it. Because when we understand rules, we understand something outside of ourselves that is kind of forced upon us to comply. And that is not how the Bible is written. The Bible is written in a way that is, is, is in sync with who we are as people. And one of the ways that the Bible shows itself to be that way is the fact that it begins with the wedding, ends with the wedding, and has an erotic love poem in the middle. So rather than you know, thinking about the Bible as like a rule book or maybe a self-help book, or, and I know none of you guys think that way, um, but really seeing it as, as you know, the, a divine love story. Not, not a divine love story, but the divine love story. And this is important, though, because it will challenge us how we understand love stories, all right? And, you know, most of us have been grown up in a church or been at least taught that love is a verb, it's not an emotion. And that's absolutely true, and I'm not making fun of that. But I would like to flush that out. How all-encompassing is that? What does that mean? And then how is that portrayed in the Bible? So, um, you know, I think this podium would be big enough, but apparently I don't have enough room up here, so i got to... All right. Yeah, so when you think of God, like, what are the titles that we normally think of, right? We think of... When you think of God, what what is the title? Heavenly Father. Jeanette. Okay. So you don't agree that love is a verb? Is that what you were just No, I do. I just don't think we understand it. I, th- I think we're, we're too, we're, we, we project our own understanding upon God. And what I'm trying to say is that love is a verb, and we don't get it yet. We need to flush that out more. Yeah, thanks for asking. Hopefully this is loud enough. All right, what are the other, so Heavenly Father, what other titles do you think of God? Okay, Jehovah, that's another name for God, Yahweh. A title, so Heavenly Father, you know. Savior, I was going to say that's number one on my list. Savior. Did you say Redeemer? Creator. Redeemer. I I said that one again, that was second on my list. Uh, Shepherd. Shepherd. King, King of Kings. Lover, okay. But what about bridegroom? You know, we don't think about God as a bridegroom necessarily. Maybe we do. We really sit down and think about it, and it might be like number 10, 12, I don't know. It might be low on the old list. Versus like Savior, Redeemer. And, and while that is sort of explainable, because um, there's a lot of the Bible that talks that way. But as we already showed, the Bible starts with the wedding, ends with the wedding, has an erotic love poem. Bridegroom should already be up there. And, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to show you. So uh, I ask this to early communion people when I talk about the Ten Commandments. Uh, so Mark, Mark chapter 12, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's like, commandments. I mean, how do you read it? What are you, what are you talking about? You should know this. And then the guy's like, well, what, you know, which ones? Well, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, of course, all-encompassing. So I asked the kids, what is the word in each of those verses? Love! Yes. Okay. 
So the Ten Commandments are primarily about love, loving God, loving your neighbor. And that's because it describes who God is. So now when we have our examination in the Ten Commandments, I say we're, we're in the nave and we're, we're going on a journey from the baptismal font up to the altar. And on the way, after we've been baptized, we talk about the Ten Commandments. And I start, I say, hey, what does God love to do? Save us? Well, yeah, yeah, but like, it's even easier than that. What, is, what does God love to do? Well, God loves to love. This is his favorite thing to do. He loves to love. All right? And this is, you know, again, so what does love mean? Love's a verb, right? Love of saving is part of love. But there is this understanding. Um, but of course, though, how, how does God love? Doing stuff, right? What's the ultimate way he loves? Giving himself. So how does he love? He loves with himself. So there is no understanding of love from God that doesn't include this intimate receiving of him himself. Because when we say the forgiveness of sin, sometimes we see that as outside of him, receiving him. I, I didn't want to get too nerdy, but if any case anybody wants to know, in the Lutheran Confessions, okay, did everyone have their cup of coffee already? I don't want anybody to fall asleep. In the Lutheran Confessions, this actually comes up. Can you receive God's gifts without receiving him? Seems like a weird question, right? An academic question. Well, no, it is a real practical question. Because if you only receive God's gifts without receiving him, is there a space between you two? Think about that. Can I receive a gift without receiving him? And if the answer is yes, then is there a space between him and I? And if there's a space between him and I, then how close can our relationship actually be? Because then we begin to question, how big is that space? And what if it's big? I mean, yeah, I get his forgiveness, but he's still far off. Okay, well, God loves to love, and since God is love, the only way he loves is by giving himself. So you can't receive God's gifts without receiving him. All right, so the God, God is the lover who gives himself to his beloved. And, and, and what kind of lover is he? He's passionate. He's very passionate. Um, in the post-communion collect, um, you know, the prayer that we say after, the, uh, after receiving the Lord's Supper, um, uh, we give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through the salutary gift. We implore, we implore you. Good job. Keep going. Let's see. I want to see how good. The kids always get it. So I'm, I'm comparing you with the kids. No offense. <laughs> yep. True faith. Towards you and... Okay. Fervent love. Now, again, uh, you got to wake up a little bit. I'm going to talk about the German. Anybody know the German translation of fervent love? Well, apparently, Elvis Presley is a big fan of the German version of the Lutheran post-communion collect. Because fervent love is burning love. 
And I have a couple go-to songs when I go to the lip sync contests. I'll tell you what, the number one go-to song for me, I'm a hunk of hunk of burning love. And I really see it as a form of evangelism. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sharing, this is, what, this is how God loves. So this understanding that we receive our Lord Jesus, his body and his blood, the forgiveness of sins, but his presence in the Lord's Supper, and there is a direct corollary to loving someone else, but not just a love, a burning love. The word fervent does mean that, but we've kind of sanitized our understanding of the word fervent. So, um, fervent is more of like a, uh, well, how do you understand the word fervent? This is, yeah, like, what do you, when you guys hear that word fervent love, what do you guys think of? You might not think of anything. If you don't think of anything, don't answer this question. I want to, for those who might have thought of this. Persistent, strong, yeah, right. And th- that's all part of, that's, that's true. Those are all true. Um, but those are also true of burning love. The word burning love adds another kind of level of character. And it's, it's, very, it's, very, it's an interesting picture, right, of like God is burning with love. And, of course, when we think of fire, we could think of hell. But we can also think of what? The Holy Spirit, right? Now, a few years ago, I can't remember when, maybe two years ago, we went through uh, Katharina, Regina von Greifenberg, and she had a great quote about the love of God. The love of God is hotter than what? Anybody remember this? Yes, hotter than hell. Man, I love that phrase. Because... There's just no place in, in the universe where God's love is just not, not there. Okay. All right. Anyway, so uh, God is a bridegroom who wants a relationship with his bride. And, of course, we, you might have said, oh, yeah, you know, I remember Jesus calling himself a bridegroom. And that's great. Um, oh, boy. Here we go. So now we go to Exodus 24. All right. Exodus 24. Mount Sinai is a divine wedding. It's a wedding. This is a wedding ceremony that happens at Mount Sinai. First of all, what in the world is Mount Sinai? All right. Well, just to bring us up to speed here. Um, I'm sure everyone has seen uh, Charlton Heston play Moses, or be Moses, maybe. For those who might not have ever read the Exodus story, have seen the, the Ten Commandments. Moses, an Israelite, a Hebrew, is in Egypt, and his... People are enslaved. And, you know, he's raised by the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. He's kicked out of Egypt. Goes meet Jesse and his family and marries Zipporah. Polly and I had another girl. Maybe we'd name her Zipporah. Why not, right? I don't hear that name enough. I hear Sarah's, Rachel's. I never hear Zipporah. Come on. Married to Moses. Like one of the most important people in the of scripture. <laughs> what in the world? You got, you got one? Your next child? Zipporah. Zipporah. Kind of zip. Hey, zip. Think of all the great nicknames Zipporah could 
call today. All right, so Moses marries Zipporah, goes back to Egypt, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ten plagues, which is a titanic battle between the Egyptian gods and the one true God. For those moms who've been to Pastor Chats, you know that because sumo wrestling, right? So, if you guys ever want to come, Pastor Chats, feel free. Because when we teach the ten plagues, there's a sumo wrestling match. Kids sumo wrestle me. We dress up in these outfits. So it's a lot of fun. All right, so the point, though, is, is that this story of Exodus has to be understood in the backdrop of this divine love story. So if this is a, a love story, what is happening? God is going to get his wife back, his bride back, and he is willing to fight for her. And he conquers Egypt. And then what does he do? Well, he brings her out into the desert. But this desert's a peculiar place. Okay? So, because uh, why? What happens in the desert? Well, first of all, they go through the Red Sea. They're cleansed, you know, right? Because Egypt, the Egyptians come out and set the Red Sea where they're finally rid of all that. The New Testament talks about being cleansed. Then they get into the wilderness and they're fed. The desert, a place where there's no food available, God provides food. Where there's no water, God provides water. So this desert is an unusual place that's overflowing with food and drink. And then he brings them out to Mount Sinai. And they have the Ten Commandments. Okay, and then now we're in Exodus 24. And if you have the Pew Edition Bible... There's a subtitle called The Covenant Confirmed. Okay. Um, we're going to start at verse 3. I'll go to verse 11. And I might do some free translation. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. We don't really like the word rules. Just decrees, that's another way of translating. Anyone have a different translation? Laws and regulations, yeah. Um, it is the words of the Lord and their way of life. So these rules are not, again, directions like you're following a, a map or like a directions to a place. You're actually following a person along the way to, well, to your home, actually. But All right. And all the people answered with one voice. So all the people are answering like a person. That's important. One voice. They're answering as one. One God, one, and then one response. All the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay. What is the typical response in the vows of a wedding? If you're Lutherans, we all know we say, I will. But as a portrayed in the movie, what do you say? I, I do. Okay. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. What mountain? Mount Sinai. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood. Okay, well, hang on. So 
They offer sacrifices. What do sacrifices do? In the Old Testament, sacrifices provide access. They, 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 they cover sin. They make holy so that then people can approach God. So we've got to fast forward a little bit to the tabernacle. right? You have the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And there's this progression to the inner sanctum of the holy of holies. It's providing access. Okay. Yeah, I got these glasses. I've got to get used to using them here. All right. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. Okay, so the blood is holy. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we'll be obedient. Now, the word obedient is kind of unusual because that word obedient is the same as Shema. You know what Shema is? Anybody knows Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Hear the word hear. So Shema means listen. It means obey. It means, yeah, we're, we're like, we're in sync. Like, I hear you kind of thing that we even talk about in English. So the word obedient has a, um, we are in sync with one another. And Moses took the blood, this is verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. When I ever read that to the kids, they're all like, ugh. Why is the Bible so weird? Behold the blood of the covenant. Oh, and and then said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It's not the not the most burning love sound of vows made in the history of the universe, but it probably, you know, more important than the ones we make. All right. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God and ate and drank. All right, so... The blood of the, of the, the, the blood of the covenant provided access. How intimate of an access. So every place in the Bible, when a man beholds God, what, what could happen to him? They could be struck dead. They struck dead. So this doesn't happen. So this is unusual. And not only that, though, um, again, so they saw Seen is an unusual term, right? When we think of seen, we think, oh, hey, I saw that chair there. I don't think, oh, I'm in an intimate relationship with the chair when I see the chair. So the word, when they saw God, is they saw him kind of in his vulnerability, like he's revealing himself to them. So it's not only that they came out alive, said that they actually saw God in a way that no one has ever seen God since the Garden of Eden. And, and they beheld God. So, um, you know, benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. You remember, like, what, what is this weird? That's weird. Make his face shine. You know? You ever think about that? Like, what is that? What are the image of that, Right? His face is shining. Of course, we see that in Moses' face, and then we see that at the transfiguration. But that's just not some cool thing. That actually means something. 
When his face is shining, his face is exuding his presence. So when God shows his face, we see God and he sees us. And then, of course, uh, make his face shine upon you. Should we start over? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and those go together. The Lord lift up his countenance, or how do we say it now? That's the old, that's the old translation, Jan. Yeah. TLH-er. You red hymnal lady. I, I, I always, I, every now, I don't know if you ever noticed that. You're going to be looking for it now, Jan. Uh, every now and then I'll say that, though. Like during LB's blessing, all of a sudden, countenance comes out, and I'm like, why, why did I say that? Uh, lift up his countenance. Or, but look upon with favor, yeah. Uh, favor, favor is hesed, or hesed, or H-E-S-E-D is how we spell it. Anybody know what that means? It's a, yeah, it's like, the, it's like the agape of the Old Testament. Yeah. So we're asking God to love us. Look, look at us with that loving look. And that's exactly what's happening in Exodus 24. All right, so they're at, at the mountain. Okay, great. And, and we got nuptials. These are, nuptials. These are vows being spoken. And how do we know that? Well, it's because there's a covenant. Covenant is a sacred family bond between persons, establishing between them a permanent and sacred relationship. That's, the, that's like the dictionary definition. The creator of the universe and Israel are now in a flesh and blood relationship. You notice that? So there's flesh and blood. There's an exchange of flesh and blood going on here. And it culminates in a meal together. Which, of course, a meal in the old, in the old days was family, right? You, you eat together. So now they are family. Um, and by the way, uh, what are all the words that he had to write down? Well, the, primarily the Ten Commandments, which of course the Ten Commandments are not commandments. If you've been around long enough, Pastor Bruzek will talk about what? The Ten what? Ten words. That's right, DeBars. Um, but but uh, the ten, in, in Exodus 19, it starts out, hey, I'm the guy, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who saved, your, saved you. So this is how we're going to be together. I'm going to be exclusive with you. You're exclusive with me. I'm going to speak really well of you. You're going to speak well of me. You are the image of God. So don't make images of me. We are a family. So love your family. I already said we're exclusive. So don't, don't go after other gods, because I'm not going to go after anybody else except for you. That's the sixth commandment, by the way. We're going to give, and we're going to receive. We're going to speak well of each other, and we're not going to doubt or mistrust the gifts that I'm going to give you. That's the Ten Commandments. So those are vows. That kind of sounds like, hey, what are, what are our vows kind of when we make vows today? They're all kind of the same, whatever Christian denomination you're in. Right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, till death us do part. This is exactly what the Ten Commandments are vows. God's making his vows. And then they say, yeah, we're going to do that too. Okay. And it's sealed with the covenant. The covenant is not a, I mean, it's a contract, 
It's not like, I mean, are your vows, do you think your vows are like, do you, you know, do you think vows at a wedding are like a contract? Sometimes, right? We're like when, when you're, you know, like when I forget to take out the garbage. I was like, hey, don't you remember? Hey, buddy, lift up, lift up to your end of the bargain, buddy. No. She just says, take out the garbage. And I say, yes. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, so, so the vows are promises. Covenant is like vows, like promises. It's an agreement that we are going to be this way with each other. And the only way you'd ever use, like, contract language is if someone's an idiot, right? So we don't really talk that way. And we shouldn't talk that way when we talk about God. It's not a contract. All right, but you say, ah, pastor, this is not nuptial. What are you talking about? Well, the prophets will help us see that this is a wedding. Now, there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament to see that what happens at Sinai is, in fact, a divine wedding. I got a couple. Let's put on a couple here. One of them is Hosea, chapter 2, 14 through 15. Therefore, behold, I will elure her. If you want to look up in your Bible sometime, see what the word elure is translated. This is the ESV. So um, I think in the NIV it was woo. I'm going to woo her, which I like. I like that. All right. Who's her? Well, let's figure it out. Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And then Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord came to the prophet, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. So when we get to Exodus 24, everything is great. I mean, his wife that was, like, in bondage to Egypt, he kicks Egypt's butt, rescues her, loves her. And so we haven't... This is the closest humanity has ever been to God since the Garden of Eden. In fact, as I already mentioned, there are echoes throughout Mount Sinai of, of the Garden of Eden. I already talked about the land flowing with food and water, uh, intimacy between God and humanity. Um, but the, actually, the mountain itself is a sign of Eden. I don't think we really make a big deal about that, but, you know, Garden of Eden was on a mountain. How do we know it's on a mountain? Yeah, we know this because we know our geography and the way water flows. Does water flow up a mountain? No. So what's coming out of the Garden of Eden? A river. Not just a river. Two rivers, right? Yeah, so there's got to be a pie somewhere. Now someone could say, well, how do you know it's a mountain? Okay, read the rest of the Bible, okay? There's a lot of really good mountains out there, and I guess Garden of Eden could be just a higher place. It'd be the only place where it wasn't a mountain. Okay. All right, anyways, so, so what we have here is we have a really close... So Garden of Eden, right? God, humanity, loving one another, perfect, perfect relationship. How did it turn out in the Garden of Eden? Not good, right? So 
<laughs> we kind of, we've kind of heard this story before. So how is it going to turn out in Exodus 24, right? Was Israel faithful? No, right? You know, but is it, so is it time to break up? We gave it our best, guys. It's time to break up. I don't know. So right after the wedding, what does Moses do? He goes up to the mountain, right? Yeah, he's up there for a long time. Um, you know, so Israel, you know, it's like, we don't know if he's coming back. Phew. In fact, well, let's see here, I can't remember. Right. Hmm. All right, so this is important. So is it time to break up? So one of the things is we need to understand that sin isn't breaking a rule, but spiritual adultery. If God isn't simply a creator or some cosmic rule giver, but a bridegroom who's burning with love, then sin isn't just breaking a rule, but a betrayal of a relationship. I mean, the only thing that's broken when sin is relationships and hearts. Okay? And, um, but this, this resonates with our love stories. How we talk about love. I mean, this can be applied to any of our relationships. Right? Uh, you know, the famous phrase from the, the gangsters, right? It's just, it's not personal. It's business. Except for the, on the other guy of that saying, he's like, you better believe it's personal. It's not just business. Right? So when you ever have any sort of break in relationship, even if it's like a, like a business relationship, you, it hurts, right? It kinda, you kind of take it personal. Because it's not just breaking a rule, it's you're, there's something now not right inside of who you are. And of course, you know, this is why love songs resonate with us. Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to, to get that. I mean, I, I'm sure you are all Olivia Rodrigo fans. <laughs> those are powerful, those are heart-wrenching songs. It's, it's a, it's a newer singer. Teenager. Teenage Broken Hearts. Traitor, right? She has a song named Traitor. It's about her boyfriend who breaks up with her and two weeks later finds another girl. Come on. See? You know how that feels. Man! Why is that? It's not, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not business. It's personal. So we need to understand sin as this really, like, you're just not breaking a rule. It's not like as if God had made it these rules and he's like, ah, listen, you didn't do your homework. It means, you know, you don't get any Xbox tonight. No, it's like it like cuts, it's boom, cuts right to the heart. So um, the golden calf is all about falling in love with a thing instead of a lover. So actually, since we're so close, let's just flip over a couple pages to Exodus 32. Because again, I don't think any of us have said, oh man, I am going to bow down to a statue. I know for all the people who like call us idol worshipers for bowing towards the crucifix, none of us are like, oh man, this is, the crucifix is the thing, right? I mean, oop. Sorry, it was a dollar. Oh, I was going to say, where is it? There it is. I see it. I got it. I got it. Oh, here's my wife. She's coming to the rescue. Like most of my life, 
those are done. I think it's broken, broken. That's, that's broken right there. Yeah, I know. Oh, sorry. I was shocked. All right. That's all right. You know, you get them, you get them like in packs of six for a reason. Now I feel like officially like, I, I feel like I'm officially like into the club now. I turned 45 this year. I had to start wearing the glasses. You know, that club. It's exclusive, right? Exactly, right? I'm definitely in the club now. My grandfather, Grandpa Stanley, man, holy smokes. I'm like, Grandpa, how can you even see out of those glasses? Because they're always filled with, yeah. Okay, enough about me. All right, Exodus 32, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, so none of us really have this urge to, like, bow down to anything, right? I mean, I don't think so. Maybe you do. I don't know. If you do, well, maybe we have some other things to talk about, but besides adultery. But the thing is, though, is that what happens in Exodus 32 isn't really this urge to bow down to a thing. There's something else going on. All right, we're not going to read. It. So we'll just start at verse 30, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, hey, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So there's a lot of things wrong with that statement, right? So, but what are they asking for? Are they asking for a statue? No, they want somebody to go before them. So it's an interesting desire. Like they, they, they know they need help. They need to get us out of here. Um, they just think they can decide for themselves what they think is best. Well, why was Aaron so willing to do it? I mean, he lost, his brother was lost. What about these other people? Well, you know, Marilyn, he's a damn sinner. If you, if you can understand sin, I mean, that's your question. I don't know. I mean, I don't know, because he's... But they came from his society. Hi, listen, listen. Garden of Eden, Jan. God's standing. Why, do these, why would Adam and Eve just trust God's love? Right? Because it's the same thing. They're distrust. I mean, God just took them out of the land of Egypt with all these crazy things. The sea is parting and locusts is coming down and pus is coming out of people's arms. It's one of my favorite plagues. The boils. Not our former vicar, though. Just the boils. It's an old joke there. Okay, anyhow. What were we talking about again? Oh, yeah. So they had a whole notion of like, you know, ah, why does this happen? I don't know why it happens. Um, but if you ask yourself, why do I distrust God's love in my life? If you answer that question, then maybe you can work back and answer these other questions. Because it's really it's just describing who we are. It's not them, it's us. So Aaron said to them, oh, okay, yeah, so they want, uh, they want something to go before them. And then who did they credit for, for them getting out of Egypt? Who did they credit? Moses. They didn't even, they didn't even like, God's the one who did it. Moses didn't do it. All right. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And then, uh, you know, so they took them off. Okay, down to verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Uh, and they said, hey, these are, he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, eat, eat and drink, just like in Exodus 24. But they rose up to play. Does anyone know exactly what that means? Yeah, I was going to say, some of them translate. What, what version is that? Is that the NIV? Oh, okay, because I was going to say, I think the, what's it? Yeah, I was going to say, the Living Bible has Wild Party. Um, revelry, I think revelry is another translation. Um, there we go. Yeah, they rose up to play. Like, it's a big, it's, well, I don't want to use the word orgy, but it's, it's uh, pretty nasty. I mean, it's weird. What in the, what is going on? Okay, so in Exodus 24, Israel gets true intimacy with God. In 32, they go after another god and commit spiritual adultery. Kind of literally. Aaron. Well, when, you, when you pointed out how they said, um, they didn't say that, maybe they credit God was bringing them on. Right. It's like, it just made me think of like, when you love like the stuff and not God, so you love what God does for you. That's right. They're not actually loving the relationship, and, and it's like, yeah, I totally that. You know, like when you're saying, "I'm going to do this," it's like, well, they love the fact that Moses brought them out of Egypt. Long, long time, right? And then finally, guys, God shows up and it's like, hey, let's do this. We, we, I'm, I'm all in. And you think they couldn't last 40 days, right? I mean, but the thing is, yeah, well, I, okay, I, it, doesn't, it takes me like two hours before I start, you know, mistrusting God and distrusting his love and not really sure, so I got to take matters in my own hands. And, yeah, so that's exactly right, Aaron. You, this, is, this is, it's not all those people back then. In fact... I, I've, I've, I've um, you know, we've had this conversation with men, like men a lot of times like to do this. Because, you know, men aren't very empathetic. I don't know if you guys knew that. EQ is pretty low on men. You guys know what EQ means? Emotional quotient. There's an intellectual quotient, an emotional quotient. Generally speaking, men are a little bit lower. That doesn't mean they can't, be, they can't learn, though. Just to let you know, they can learn. But, you know, men are like, oh, what's wrong with those people? Those losers. And I'm like, what? You're, the, you're a loser for saying that. So, yeah, it, it's, it takes a little, a little harder for men to, like, realize that Israel's story is actually uh, their story. So, Julie. That's right. Yeah, right. So this is one of the interesting things is that they are actually saying they're they're believing that this this golden calf is a symbol or a means to access the God who saved them. Yeah. Now, again, I don't want to get into too much into like the ancient ways of worshiping God, but um, 
to, to, to like the whole notion of temple prostitution, very, very common back in those days, and that actually made it into, well, in fact, the Canaanite region, where the promised land, they had temple prostitution. So this whole notion of, like, we're going to worship God with, like, having this kind of weird revelry thing? You're like, what? No, that, that, that's, 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 that happens. Nancy. Yeah, but also... The camp was a similar file. The um, you know, gods are the Canaanites and the Israelites were kind of related. Even in those days there was a lot of commerce between Oh yeah, yeah, right. You know, so it may have been that was the default. Yeah, right. They come out of nowhere. That's exactly right, Nancy. Yeah. So it's not like they made that up. This is kind of what they had. And remember they were in four hundred and thirty some years enslaved. So they really didn't have like you know, they didn't have a lot of work with, in a sense. So you can empathize. At the same time, what just happened? They went through the Red Sea. They got foods coming out of the sky and water's coming out of rocks. So again, you could say, oh, they didn't know exactly. But they had good reason to be like, I'm just going to do whatever God says. Well, they actually said they would. But All right. But so anyway, so just understand this is a broken marriage. We're running out of time here. Uh, Jeremiah, and then even Hosea 1, Hosea 1 two also, and then in, in Isaiah, so Ezekiel, Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah bring out this, uh, this, this idea of a broken marriage. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So this notion of like, hey, Sin is spiritual adultery. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Um, you know, so Israel's sin is like, um, or it is spiritual adultery. Now the thing is, though, this is interesting because this isn't necessarily to make, you, make any of us feel bad, although we have to recognize that in our own lives. It's really to show how God can feel. God feels for you. He feels you. I mean, his heart is broken, too. You know, and the guy's like, hey, I'm, I'm mad that you did this. I mean, how many people do you know do something wrong to get a rise out of the loved one? Just so that they know they are, they think about them. That's a common trope in telling stories, right? So, God being mad at them is normal. That's, that's how he should respond. It's not like he's being a big jerk. He's not like your teacher saying, hey, you're chewing gum in class. You're suspended for the rest of the year. You're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. No, God's mad because Israel broke his heart. It's normal. So God knows what it means to have a broken marriage. He knows how to have a broken rela- what it means to have a broken relationship. Um, you know, in Israel, rather than trusting the love of the most passionate lover in the universe, distrust this. And, but the thing is, though, God never abandons his spouse. And, and, and so, you know, even to kind of get more dramatic, Israel takes all the things that he has given to her and gives them to another. That's exactly what he did with the golden calf. All that language should be reserved for him, but they applied it to this golden calf. So why does God love so much even though Israel doesn't? Hey, because he's love. It's grace. Um, now we have to go to that question. And I, was, I didn't want to spend too much time on it earlier. Why doesn't Israel love? Unconditional love is hard. 
It's hard to get used to because there's shame in our life. And that's been an experience all the way since the Garden of Eden. Shame has caused us to say, I, I am not to be loved unless I do something. We're not comfortable with being loved just because. We really believe we need to be loved for a reason. But this is not who God is. This is not how he works. I mean, all of us think love is a game on a certain level, right? Or it's a relationship where we kind of use people to get something until they're not useful. But this is not how, this is not what's happening in Exodus, and this is not what's happening in the Bible. But praise be to God, what does he do? Well, he's new covenant, a forgiven bride. We're going to speed through this. Okay, so he empathizes with the brokenhearted, and he mends the brokenhearted. So nothing is going to stop God from loving you. All is not lost. Right? He's going to establish a new covenant. A new marriage covenant. He's, he's like Sean Mendez. He can treat you better than he can. Come on. You know it. Right, Sarah? Come on. Sean Mendez, another teeny... Well, he might be in his 20s now, but he's another young, like... I, I love that song. I can't remember how it goes off the top of my head, though, but probably shouldn't sing it anyways. Yeah, so he, he, so he promises to forgive her sins, reestablish the mirror covenant. He's not going to let his bride go. He's going to win her back, even if it means he has to die for her. And, of course, that's what he does, right? But take a look. Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. Well, no kidding. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. I didn't want to look at you. I can't even look at you right now, God said. But with everlasting love, with chesed, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord has compassion on you. Ugh, I love that stuff. Come on. So, God wants you back. And of course, where does that happen? Jesus. Alright, so, the new covenant is a marriage covenant. Alright? Where he's going to shower his bride with gifts, like his, the, the compassion, peace, faithfulness, stuff we just read the uh, steadfast love. Those are the gifts he gives. Um, the covenant is directly tied to the forgiveness of sins, though. Like, so he, he makes us clean. He provides us access. He washes us so that we come into his presence. And then, of course, it is... Um, hang on. Go back. For a moment, I hid my face from you. We don't want God to hide his face. We want us to be face-to-face. Together, intimate. Union with God is the pinnacle. All right, we see that in Exodus 24. A foreshadowing. Marriage covenant, the vows. Blood of, blood of the covenant. Forgive sins of Israel. And then the people God see face to face. But this is ultimately filled in the face of Jesus. In his crucifixion. Jesus is the one guy where his death day is his wedding day. Where most people see their weddings as their funeral terrible. I hated that. Bill Ball and Change trope. Hate that. It's terrible. I never understood that humor. 
All my uncles had that. I don't get it. All right. So just real quick, Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm not going to go through all the New Testament stuff about Jesus talking about himself as a bridegroom, but he brings all that Old Testament stuff to fruition. Jesus wears a crown, like every Jewish bridegroom wears a crown on his wedding day. Uh, and, and every Jewish bridegroom, again, back in those days, I don't, I don't know if Jews still necessarily do it exactly the same way, but Jesus is dressed like a priest. What kind of garment is he wearing? A, a, a one without a seam, right? That's a, that's a priestly garment. Um, and then, of course, uh, on the cross, what is he, he is, is out of the side, his bride is created, just like Adam out of his side. But the bridal chamber mimics the temple. This goes back to the union. So what does Jesus do? He gives up his body for his bride, his love for his bride. And then the, the two become one. The bridal chamber... Old Jewish bridal chamber mimic the temple. I don't have time to, to sh- just trust me on that. You can look it up. Um, and, and they enter the bridal chamber to become one. So does God join himself to his bride in union. So the holy of holies, where God and man, there's no distance between the two, now are together. So all of human history is a story, a divine love given, betrayed, forgiven, and renewed because of the mercy and compassion of God. So, this idea that seeing God as a bridegroom not only, like, soothes us and our broken hearts, it challenges men. Regardless if you're married or not, by the way. Yeah, so, you know, this has nothing to do with... this. every, Every man, whether they have a wife or not, sees... God acting this way, and now that defines even how they act. They're, they're this notion of giving and loving and dying for another. But also, too, then, um, this also informs how, how God, you know, the guilt and shame we might feel. We have a story already that says to us, hey, you're not the only one who's felt that way, and God's not going to do something new with you to make you Continue to feel that way. In fact, he's going to do what he's already always done. Forgiving your sins, remove the shame, and bring you into an intimate relationship with him. Because that is exactly why we were created. All right. Any questions? You can always hang out afterwards if you want. But we'll pray and we'll go. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.